every domestic worker in Hong Kong, whether you are Nepali, Indonesian, Indian, uh, Filipino, doesn't matter, but everyone should be treated the same according to the employment contract. We do organize a lot of dancing, <laughs> dancing festival, food festival. Uh, you know, uh, our meeting means we bring food of different nationality and we tell our stories and so forth. So this kind of uh, mutual developing this uh, understanding among each other in spite of our limitation in language. Welcome back to Our Migrant Podcast, a podcast dedicated to highlighting the stories of migrant workers and human rights issues across Southeast and East Asia. The Our Migrant Podcast is part of the BBC Network, Better Engagement Between East and Southeast Asia. BBC is a cross-regional online platform for migrants, their families, supporters and advocates in or from East and Southeast Asia. We'll be officially launching the website in a few weeks, so stay tuned. In the meantime, today, we are joined by Amy Lestari, a prominent migrant workers' rights advocate, driven by the need to support her family following the Asian financial crisis in 1997, Annie left Indonesia to become a domestic worker 17 years ago. A victim of labor abuses by her employer, she became an activist advocating for better protection and empowerment of migrant workers. Welcome, Annie, and we are so thankful to have you uh, have spared some time for us today. Thank you for having me. Hi, Annie. I'm so happy, Hi. you know, to have you here because we have worked together for some time, you know, especially advocating, of course, the rights of migrant workers. So, how's Hong Kong today? Well, Hong Kong, uh, since the last year, uh, ongoing protests against the. Mm you know, extradition bill in Hong Kong and now that during this COVID-19 has been really under a lot of political and health pressure. So up to now, Hong Kong still declaring the war against COVID-19. So there are a lot of restrictions, social distancing and uh, a lot. the people has been heavily affected and plus considering the economic impact to the livelihood of the people in Hong Kong. So it's quite a difficult time, I can say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, uh, all the best for you. But to start with uh, our conversation, can you tell us about your decision uh, to become a migrant worker 20 years ago? It really began with uh, the Asian financial crisis in 1997. You know, uh, that crisis really put our life uh, upside down, including my life. Uh, as a young graduate from high school, I really hope to be able to continue my study at the university. My family uh, are poor, uh, and they, but they believe in education. And my parents really wish all the children, three of us, will be able to enjoy the college. You know, so they try their best to send uh, to send us to the good uh, the the good school and hopefully to the uh, better universities. But because of the Asian financial crisis everything really become crushed you know the prices become very high and my parents only earn from the market selling food 
and they cannot earn enough uh, during 97 to 1999 you know before i left the country and they were heavily indebted to the banks to the loan shop they tried to really uh, put their head above the water just to make all the children could go to school and they themselves survived the crisis so um, so after several years hoping that things will change to better but it did not really happen that way in 1999 uh, i think end of 1999 i just asked myself if i continue staying on in this uh, country i can help my parent i can work from the home you know because i was also working as a home industrial person you know that time there were several projects that they threw to the villages like uh, making a uh, you know like uh, uh, the hair for for the doll you know that kind of a simple project or sewing thing and something like that so i i do it to help my parents uh, while they are also coping with the economic uh, demands but then after several years nothing improved so i told myself i have to get out uh, and a friend of mine came to me and say hi why don't we go abroad uh, you know we just be a domestic worker i think we know how to work as a domestic worker so i thought that that will be a quick way i can save my parents from the debt also i can save money to go to school that's how i hope you know it it would be so i applied to the recruitment agency in surabaya uh, however then again my life was really twisted around they took all my documents they put me in the training camp with maybe around 300 women uh, it was very a uh, slave like condition you know like you slept on the floor you queue to the toilet you queue for food uh, you cannot go out to see your family but your family should be the one visiting you you cannot even have phone you cannot even read anything i mean newspaper or anything so practically i was in incommunicado you know like i was cut down everyone was really cut down from the outside world so it was very painful uh, it was lucky that my family lived like four hours away you know from my place uh, from my uh, training center so they visit me like at least twice a month bringing me some food you know some cash you know but a lot of my friends were already staying there uh, for more than like months you know some even for a year and their family live very far away sometimes in different island so like they can't have no one to rely on food money you know and they were, a lot of them were very desperate they become sick and many of them try to run away you know and so forth so i stayed there for like five months Uh, and I became very ill, very sicky because the whole hygiene, the whole environment was not very hygiene. You slept on the floor for months, you know. I was really suffering from very bad flu, coughing and so forth. So um, after five months, uh, the agency told me I got a job in Hong Kong. Uh, and even going to Hong Kong, it was really a struggle for me because they insist I have to go to Singapore. I had no experience at all. Uh, any any newcomer must go to either Malaysia or Singapore. And I told them, no, I'm not going to these countries. I'm going to Hong Kong. The reason why I insist of Hong Kong because uh, somebody told me, at least in Hong Kong, you have a day off. And then I really look forward to having day off, doing something else except, you know, cleaning employer house. Uh, so I can improve my own uh, knowledge and, and skill, right? So. So I really fight with the agency to go to Hong Kong and they gave me a lot of tests including English speaking and so forth and they say okay you can go to Hong Kong. So it was kind of a very uh, nervous and anxious situation for me. So after five months I've, I left uh, Indonesia. I arrived in Hong Kong but then again the agency took my passport, my ID, everything. So I was really undocumented I can say. Uh, I was legal but then I have no document at all. 
at least uh, until six months of my employment. So it was kind of a um, uh, very um, painful experience, but that's also the reason why I became very passionate with with empowerment and organizing. So basically, it is about the uh, the economic reason that uh, drive you uh, to migrate. Yes, yeah, economic reason, which is really caused by the whole global system of this, you know, you know, like we call it capitalist system or whatever you name it. But uh, our economy was really, really heavily affected, and people within on the ground, like myself, is really struggling to survive. I think it's very important what you just told us now that you know people think the migrant workers challenges start when they go to destination countries but what you're telling us about how all these you know the challenges and the rights violations have started before you you migrate or these preparations of going abroad this is something that not many people might not know uh, especially people who are in destination countries so thank yes. you for telling that yeah, that's true. Actually, the, viol- the violence against uh, migrant workers really began even on the day when we left our home. You know, within the country before we left to abroad, a lot of violence or a violation already happening from document being taken away, you are being imprisoned in the name of training, and then uh, you are being harassed if you don't uh, if you don't give them some money, for example. And I. Even before I left the country, I told the agency I wanted to return home for a while because I became very sick for months, you know, coughing and so forth. And I just realized my body is not good, uh, you know, in the cold, you know, especially I slept on the floor for months with, you know, a not proper blanket and no medical care. But the agency told me, oh, you should give me some deposit money, which is around two million rupiah at that time. But that was like a lot of money in uh, early 2000 you know it was like i i if i ask that money again my mom will go to the bank again will go to the loan shop again just to borrow the money so i can i could get out for a while from the agency so i just told my mom it's okay you know i know this is hard i really cried a lot but then i don't want her to be more indebted you know unnecessarily so yeah i stayed throughout uh, before i left the country Yeah, you mentioned earlier that you became, uh, you become activist. Uh, finally, so uh, I really, you know, like see you. I really learn from you. Uh, you, you, you know, like struggling. You really fight for your rights. So I think it makes you really empower. So uh, how you did begin your journey as an activist, and why you did, be, did you be, become an interested in activism? Mm-mm. So when I worked with my first employer, uh, I I thought I already left, you know, the hell back home in the training camp and then I would have a better treatment. But when I worked in my first job, uh, I was treated no differently. Like uh, I worked there for uh, seven months, but during that months, uh, they they did not even give me clothes during the winter i came here in winter you know early 2000 and you could imagine somebody from tropical place and suddenly going to the winter and it was like seven celsius in hong kong and i was like shivering every day 
So they did not give me a proper jacket, clothes, and then they have so many house rules, you know. For example, they don't allow me to go out uh, to meet people, and then they also uh, tell me to sleep, uh, uh, to, to eat in the, in the kitchen, and then they also uh, tell me not to use a washing machine. They also tell me uh, don't talk to a foreigner or anyone, and they don't even give me the key uh, to the house. So even uh, for example, they gave me a, a bed, but the bed with no mattress. So I practically sleeping on the wooden bed, and they just gave me like a thin blanket for me to sleep. So I, and and the house was too small. So the house has a four people and two a boys and uh, the parent, you know. And I have to share a room with a 15 years old boy, which is that time it was like oh my god, I was so quite scared, you know, because this boy is not even small boy. He was so tall, you know. So, but then I had no choice again, you know. I have to endure that. And the agency told me, my employer told me uh, that I will not have a day off for two years. I was so shocked, you know, because I thought I would have a day off. That's the reason why I came to Hong Kong. But then, uh, what can I do? I just arrived in Hong Kong. The agency told me in front of my employer, you will not have a day off for two years, and your salary only like one thousand eight hundred. And that time. The minimum wage in Hong Kong was around three thousand six hundred and seventy. So practically, I, I was paid fifty percent of the minimum wage. But I didn't know it was illegal. So because I thought I already I'm already in Hong Kong, I cannot say no. If I say no, then I will be deported. So I just okay, I'll do it. But then after uh, three months, four months, I became very um, unhappy with the whole arrangement. Because I feel that uh, my freedom was really being taken away. I do not know when I could meet my friends. I feel very exploited, you know. Uh, and within three or four months, the employer did not give me my salary, and they say, "I have, I give your money to your agency because you own the money for training." And so within four months, I practically received nothing except the 200 Hong Kong dollar uh, that my employer gave me because they say you don't have a day off at all. So this is your compensation. And that's the money I used to buy clothes, to buy extra food. And that's not even enough. Yeah. So so after that uh, experience, I told my my employer, I insist of having day off. And my employer told me, okay, I'm going to give you the off only once a month. But then I will cut your 200. You get nothing except 1,800. I told them, take whatever you want. I can go crazy in this house, you know. And that time my Cantonese was not very good, right? So I was having hard time of talking to them. So when I had my day off in the fifth, sixth month. Of my employment, I used that opportunity to connect with my friends for the same agency in Indonesia, and I told them what happened to me. And then I realized many of my friends were like me; they were also paid underpaid. We call it underpayment. They were not given day off. Every time they ask for day off, even once a month, they have to fight until you know uh, the employer must threaten them with a lot of uh, you know different thing, including termination. And however, some of us, some of my friends, were actually given a proper treatment. Like they have minimum wage at least. They have every Sunday holiday. So this friend of mine, the one who actually tried to get a number of NGO in Hong Kong, it's called Mission for Migrant Workers, and they gave me the number. But any, this is in English. I know you can speak English a little bit. So I used the public phone to call them, and that's the time they told me, you know, every domestic worker in Hong Kong, whether you are Nepali, Indonesian, Indian. A Filipino doesn't matter, but everyone should be treated 
the same according to the employment contract. That's the time I feel cheated. Like, what the heck, you know? I've been suffering all these months. Uh, that actually I was being cheated, you know? But again, uh, according to our survey in 2001, 80% of the Indonesian were really underpaid. We were being sold to employer what I call it in the discounted prices. You hire Indonesian, you will get only, you just pay them 50%, don't give them day off, they are fine with that. So a lot of the Indonesian suffering, including myself, unnecessarily because this agency created a scheme, so then the employer will hire Indonesian. So I ran away after seven months, I stay in the boarding house, uh, not boarding house, I stay in the shelter, uh, it's called Betun House, Migrant Women's Refuge, and this is where I begin my empowerment. I learned about organizing uh, through the Filipino, Nepali, Thai because I was so envy. How could they be even organized, you know? Uh, domestic helper organized how, you know? So I, every Sunday, you know, because in Hong Kong, when you are unemployed, you cannot work legally. So practically, I was unemployed throughout my months of being uh, of having cases to the uh, in the in the labor department, so I keep following all this nationality to different activities with Nepali. You know, uh, they have a lot of festival with the Filipino. They have a lot of games. They have a lot of protests with the the Thai. They have a lot of cultural activities and so forth. So that's when I realized, you know, if they can do this, why can't we? You know, I mean, what is the difference? Even Nepali, they don't speak English well. Even the Thai, they don't speak English at all because we are made to believe by the agency Indonesian are cheap because you don't speak English. Yeah, so that's how I I realized, no, we can change our life. So that's when I began my organizing. Penny, I'd like to explore more the, um, the idea of racism that you've um, talked about here, that you were saying that actually if there's also discrimination you know obviously between the employers and the agencies and the migrant workers but also discrimination between the specific subgroups of migrant workers themselves right you're saying that people often hire indonesians because they are considered to be cheaper, cheaper. or stuff like that uh, can you explain more about that concept and how did you feel when you figured out that you were you know, discriminated because of where you came from. Yeah. So just to be honest with you, you know, I mean, quite a funny when I reflect this, even before I left the country, it's not only me, but many of my friends, yeah. Uh, when we were still in the training center, the agency themselves told us, don't speak with Filipino, okay? They want you to be out from your job. They want you to go back to Indonesia. So you, you don't have a job if you talk to them. So that's how they scare us. You know, it's like, and then when I stay in the shelter, when a lot of them are also Filipino, because the biggest population in Hong Kong, when I came here, was really Filipino. They are really, really big in number. Indonesians were second, but, you know, even up to now, Filipino is still big, the biggest. So practically, normally, every places are really hiring Filipino. So then when I came here, I realized that this agency, despite the legal uh, the law in Hong Kong that setting the rule very clearly, all domestic workers, regardless of your nationality, are receiving the minimum wage, minimum, uh, you know, weekly holiday, public holiday, and so forth. But then the agency, especially with Indonesian and Filipino, are making a price. They are working behind the law to sell Indonesian to be more profitable for them. So the reason why 
a Filipino already came here in 1970s. So naturally, Hong Kong families are very, very familiar with Filipinos. But the Indonesian only entered Hong Kong in uh, late 1989. So the number only booming in 1996. So practically, we are a newcomer. Now, this agency uh, want to get more profit. Yeah, because Filipino, for being outspoken and being very critical, they cannot be easily exploited. I don't say that many of them are not exploited. I'm saying only that they are we are they are quite conscious about their rights. But they, you know, so people with when you know your rights, the agency cannot exploit too much, right? So they need people who can be more exploitable. And they found this Indonesian, you know, which is look like Filipino by the skin, by the face, and they we speak Cantonese more than the Filipino. Uh, sellable in Hong Kong. So in 1990, in 1990s, the agency association in Hong Kong began the marketing strategy. The way they sell it, they sell the Indonesian to to make Hong Kong families accept Indonesian is higher Indonesian, 50% discount, no need to give them rest day, no need to give them annual leave, no need to give them anything. Just 50, just 50% monthly salary, and that's all. So you can imagine when I came to Hong Kong in 2000. I found a lot of Indonesian where I work because I went to the market. My employer actually worked in the market. So I mingle with some of the Indonesian, you know, in the eye contact because we cannot talk freely, right? We are under supervision of the employer. They did not even have the off for two years. You know, so I was just thinking, what was the difference between Hong Kong and Malaysia <laughs> when I came here? Even Hong Kong has a law, but these people know nothing about the law. So that's actually what made me realize the agency intentionally hide the information from us. They intentionally blind us from our own rights. That's why they keep warning us. So you know the, the strategy of how the agency cheated us? One, they confiscate our passport. So they know you cannot run away. If you don't have passport, how could you even ask help? So that's why keeping our passport is the key. Second is they keep threatening us, don't speak to Filipino. You know, they make us scared to the Filipino even before we talk to them. And then the third is the agency playing this role as mother and father. You know, this agency always tell us, you know, you are our daughter and we are your parent. You should listen to us. But then the message is about don't do this, don't do that. Uh, come to mama and papa whenever you have problem. But whenever I, uh, you know, we call the agency, like what I did in the first three months, I keep calling them because I did not have food. I don't have enough food. I don't have enough clothes. The children are so naughty. I don't know how to talk to them. They keep blaming me. You know, you just be patient, you know. So I keep calling them almost every day to the point after three months, I told myself, I'm not going to call them anymore. No way. Why? Because in the end of the day, I'm the... I'm the culprit in the eyes of the agency. So that's when I acknowledge that agency is not even our savior. They are not here to help us. They just want our money. So that's how they frame the whole situation. And then they they work with the employer to to make sure the employer do not have do not give us a day off. So the key here is no day off. Once you don't have day off, you are confined, no connection, nothing you can do. Just wait until two years and then you will be sent back to Indonesia. So it was quite horrible and the racism is working within that layer you you buy like you hire so filipino is the highest market <laughs> indonesian is the second and the rest is the sri lanka nepali 
But because of the Indonesian movement, uh, domestic worker here become stronger. When I start organizing with my friends, you know, in 2000 up to now, now that image is not that not not too obvious anymore. In fact, now the agency is trying to recruit new people from Bangladesh, Burma, and Cambodia, because they think that they they can be cheated through underpayment uh, mechanism again. Yeah. Well, thank you, Annie. And um, you know, from what you're telling us, it's really like show how it is important to to be empowered, knowing your rights, like sort of how to how to you know fight for your rights, um, knowing how to organize. Like even if, like the agency is trying to stop you from talking to Filipino domestic workers because they're more empowered, they're more knowing about their rights as a domestic workers or migrant workers, and they're sort of. You know, they're trying to sort of create the systemic sort of oppressions, like sort of as a as an agency, as an organization or institutions and uh, behind the law. So, you know, I want to sort of ask you, like, what what is you know what would be the biggest challenge for you to sort of fighting fighting against this systemic violation of rights to do with you know together with employment agencies. Uh, employers, but also you know the legal systems that exist in Hong Kong. Uh, it's really challenging. I, I think my 20 years in Hong Kong and in the movement of migrant workers really taught me a lot. That the there are two layer of issue. One is what I call it structural issues, which is poverty, legal exploitation. I mean, in a, it is legal. But it's exploitation, you know, and then uh, how uh, the government are cooperating with agencies to exploit, which is true in the case of Indonesian and uh, Indonesian government agency. But also there are un, you know, unstructural issues, you know, the employer who break the contract, the employer who cheated their workers, and so forth. So we have to do it in step by step, and it really take a lot of uh, efforts. To discover, you know, it took us a while just to understand what is the interrelation between Indonesian government and private agencies when it comes to exploiting Indonesian migrant workers, and why we are paying so much to the agencies, and the Indonesian government seems to not really care, you know, that we are uh, spending too much money to the agency. It took us a while to study all those laws, policies, and even you know additional uh, documents. Uh, so the challenges that I really face is really accessing the documents and analyzing it. That's why we have to work with, uh, you know, academe, researcher, NGOs. You know, uh, that's why I believe that the cooperation between grassroots organization and NGOs, researcher, academe is is very important one because they can tell us what we cannot see. Why? Because they see things from the micro level. We see from the micro level we are only seeing thing on the ground you know like we always see on the earth but we don't see what is there in the sky so yeah. that's that's one of the very important th- key and second is the importance of conducting a survey you know of course we have a lot of issues but the question is which problem you want to deal first this is too many problem you know from economic social political cultural whatever you name it but then which one you want to fight first you cannot fight Everything at the same time. So when we conduct the survey, it tell us what to fight first. So we conducted a big survey in 2001, 2005, and 2009, and that tell us what are the top five problem that 
we have to advocate. And then the next one is also the challenge that we face in terms of how to build solidarity with the other lo- uh, with other migrant organization from other nationality. Because when we stay together in one country like Singapore, Hong Kong, Taiwan, there are so many nationalities, not only Indonesian. There is Vietnam, there is Nepali, there is Thai, there is a Filipino. If we don't fight together, oh, the employer and the government will be happy to to pit against, uh, you know, you against each other, you know. So they are happy because uh, instead of you fighting the company or the government, you are fighting over each other. You are killing each other. It doesn't really... Um, you know, hurt the company or the government. So the challenge is really how to strengthen solidarity. Our experience in the past is really through cultural exchange. We do organize a lot of dancing, <laughs> dancing festival, food festival. Uh, you know, uh, our meeting means we bring food of different nationality and we tell our stories and so forth. So this kind of uh, mutual developing this uh, understanding among each other in spite of our limitation in language. Imagine, yeah? That's why we have, a, we call it AMCB English, which is our uh, alliance here. You know, the, we call it, it's actually broken English. The Thai English, mm. the Indonesian English, sometimes the English mixed with the Chinese. <laughs> so, the point is how we will understand each other. And the biggest ch- challenge that I face myself uh, throughout the organizing is how to break the fear. You know, Indonesian, uh, a country where we were actually, uh, you know, ruled by a military government for many, many decades. Mm-hmm. And even when they came to Hong Kong, that fear is very strong. So mm-hmm. it took us at least, I can say, maybe seven years or even more just to break that fear that it's okay, you can speak out now. It's okay, you can file case now. Because in the past, they always say, oh, you don't you don't complain because you will go to prison. That's what they believe, right? And then don't complain. The consulate will take your photo and they will backlist you. You know, uh, how dare you even file case against your employer, you know? Uh, the agency will run after your family. So it took us at least five to seven years just to break, to make them understand that the world has changed, that we have more voices now, that Hong Kong is not like that. So it's just very challenging. But... The biggest challenge, I think, I, uh, for me, is really reforming the structural issues. And that is within the law. How we are going to prove that we are, go- we are victim of modern-day slavery. How we are going to prove that there is forced labor within employment contract in Hong Kong. You know, that is the biggest challenge. We did everything we can in Hong Kong, from going to the judicial review, filing case in the high court, uh, protest on the street, lobbying advocacy in the, you know, let's go or government office. But then again, the government already made up their mind that we are just the slave in Hong Kong. So, you know, take it or leave it. That kind of language become very, very uh, common whenever we pressure them with our call. I see. I mean, yeah, breaking out the fear is, you know, it's a very powerful message from you. And I think it probably leads to our kind of next questions that we wanted to ask you. Is that, you know, you said you've been doing surveys, asking people situations and different times. And, you know, how do you see what are the differences between the issues you and other migrant workers have been 
facing compared to when you arrived and today and also you know you're telling us about the political situations back in Indonesia but now the political situation in Hong Kong is changing and you know how that might affect your work and the situation of migrant workers right so when I came here uh, in 2000 the biggest challenge is uh, how to make migrant workers know their rights and confident to fight their rights the basic one you know the a I call it the a card just know their rights and fight for it it's already a biggest challenge we had at least for first five years of organizing why as i told you they they might already read the you know the the contract but then they think this is not my right i'm afraid with my agency i'm afraid with my employer i'm afraid with the uh, agency in indonesia i'm afraid with the government so they tried not to fight it you know because they don't want to shake the boat so for many many years in fact for the first 10 years you know you can imagine 2000 2010 our major activity is just training about know your right every single sunday up to now it's become our school uh, sunday school mandatory to all members you should know your rights you know so it's like going to elementary school you should know abc now after 20 years i can say the biggest challenge we face now how can we many people know their rights but then how we can reform the structural issues that affect our life for example the indonesian government keep forcing us to pay so much money to the agency at least seven months of our salary goes to the agencies why for what you know then but the problem is that is within the law you know you have to do a lot of work advocacy work in jakarta in the consulate just to reform that one but beyond that we have to mobilize other countries to also join us because it's not only about hong kong it is also about taiwan singapore brunei middle east and so forth so that's one aspect for example now the biggest fight we have as a domestic worker how uh, we are not allowed to have a direct hiring direct processing if that means whenever you go abroad if you are domestic worker you must go to agency so we have a lot of migrant workers who went home two or three times. Every time they go abroad, they have to go to agency. That means they have to pay another seven months, seven months, seven months. So sometimes, uh, many in our survey, uh, whenever they whenever they lose job, they have to pay again the fee. So sometimes some people pay fees for until three years of their, you know, staying in Hong Kong. Imagine that for two or three years, they earn nothing but paying the agency only. So that's why everyone is so afraid of losing their job because that means they have to go back to the agency, they have to pay again another seven months. So that kind of structural issues, later on we realize it is an intentional created by Indonesian government within what we call it labor export system from Indonesia. It's very structural, it's within the law and it's not easy to just to flip-flop, you know. Now in Hong Kong, the biggest challenge is how we are going to fight for working hours regulation or at least resting hours because domestic worker already complain working too long 16 hours a day the shortest you have is 12 to 13 hours but the longest you have like in the case of Erwiana 21 hours a day so people are dying because of that kind of uh, slow you know slow erosion to their health they work 16 18 hours a day they uh, sleep Sometimes on the floor in the kitchen, uh, sometimes inside the cabinet or cupboard, sometimes they sleep even on the rooftop, and some and the employer do not give them enough food. You know, that's what also I experienced. 
they always give us leftover food, sometimes only like a head of fish and then one slice of vegetable and rice. How could that be enough for our body, you know? So we, we, we are fighting for the government to create regulation that will limit our working hours, that will regulate the food, at least the nutritious and sufficient food to our body, and also sleeping accommodation that is not go, is humane, something that will not uh, make you know not cause our health to be deteriorated. So that kind of structural issue, we call it part of the forced labor in Hong Kong. But then Hong Kong doesn't recognize uh, forced labor as part of their issue. So this kind of problem is still very difficult to fight. And in fact, up to now, uh, despite the big cases like Erwiana, the government of Hong Kong do not seem want to reform that kind of complaint. Yeah, very interesting and very inspiring story from you. It is really rooted from your personal horrible story, if I may say, Annie. So, uh, yeah, of course you come from uh, like a day-by-day abuses and violation, and then you went to the, you know, more structural problem. And what would you recommend for other migrant worker experiencing labor abuse today, Annie? Well, uh, it is very important one. Uh, my own lesson is saying like this. Before you left the country, you have to know the country. Don't go there in 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 blind. It's very important, you know, uh, especially when you are going there for a job. Even when you go there as a tourist, you must know the society, the culture, the law, you know, what you can and cannot. So all the more when you have to work there for some years, right? So know the country now that there is a Google, there is YouTube, there is a lot of contact you can find online. Try to find that contact. So first is know the place, know the thing that uh, the place that you are going there the rule second is uh, establish the contact before you go there look for organization or ngo that you can talk to and ask them in detail what is the situation there your your right what can you do if you face this and that the third is uh, really you have to create a diary you know the diary somehow maybe it it's not like oh it's you know it's like a child no but A lot of time, whenever we assist cases in Hong Kong and even other countries, when there is no witness, especially when you are a domestic worker, you are only alone in the house. No one see when people beat you up, right? No one see when you are be- being unpaid. So the diary is the one that is going to be your witness. So in the court, the diary is also being recognized. So better create a diary, a small one that you can bring everywhere. And then uh, keep the number of important group that you can contact to. A lot of in Indonesia, The agency will usually take away all those documents. Even when you arrive in Hong Kong, they will ransack your bag, they will check, they will, you know, uh, make sure you keep it in the so, you know, super safe place. Yeah, just a uh, one piece of paper that you can flip around and put it somewhere safe. Because I know the agency even took away the the book that is given by the government in Hong Kong, for example. Whenever we arrive, the government will give away book in our language, in Bahasa. But then the agency took it away. So make sure you don't You don't get the important contact to be taken away. And then the next one is whenever you when you arrive in in abroad, you contact them. You contact the organization that you are already have uh, the number right away. Don't wait until you have problem because a lot of people just call us when they are in problem. The problem is like this. Sometimes the problem is already an accumulation of violation. Then you need to gain more uh, evidence 
uh, we need to advise you how to get more evidence. But if you just call us when you are already having an issue or run away, then it's so difficult, you know. Why? Because that also affects your future employment. So just don't run away. Get uh, contact, get advice, uh, keep the record, and then call the group right away when you arrive. And then if you have to run away for some uh, issues, you know, make sure you don't bring anything your employer gives you. Because that can be a trap by itself. They will tell the police uh, you are stealing something. In a lot of cases, that's what we found. So leave everything behind that your employer uh, give you. Yeah. And of course, the last thing is please join organization. That's how you will be empowered. Otherwise, you know nothing about the new development. You are being, you know, confined and you the agency keep, will be the one telling you the thing, you know. And then yet, whatever they say, a lot of time is not even the, the truth one. Yeah, uh, thank you so much for all tips and it's based on your, of course, your personal uh, personal story and personal experience. Uh, and, 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 and any, what do you, you, according to our uh, conversation, uh, you mentioned several times about uh, the importance to have uh, em- empowerment. So what does it mean to you, empowerment? Well, for me, empowerment is... Uh, Anyone could be a victim at any given time in our life. But we don't have to be a victim all the time. We can choose to change ourselves by changing our own life. But in my case, I fight for my own right. I went to the court, I faced my employer, and then, you know, I got uh, some compensation. Then I, the next step is how will I use my knowledge to rescue to inform others so then they don't have to suffer what I already suffered. So that's why I formed the Association of Indonesian Migrant Workers also by uh, the end of 2000 after I ran away. And then uh, this organization become the, the you know, my, my field to inform and make others confident. This is your right, fight for it, you know, and so forth and so forth. And through this organization, we establish a lot of contact with the shelter, with NGOs, with a lot of network who can assist us along the process of empowerment. So empower means you transform your life from a victim to survivor. But then the next survivor is you are an advocate yourself. So now for me, I'm an advocate and I think everyone can do that. But you should have high, you know, strong uh, will. To even uh, go to that level. All right. Uh, before ending, what message do you have uh, to our listener? What change would you like to see in the future, Annie? I think what I would like to appeal to everyone, especially if you are not uh, migrant workers yourself, is really to open up your understanding by listening. To the reality of migrants. Migration today is already a phenomenon. No one can run away. Even professional, they migrate, you know, to look for a job, better life. Uh, and yet, a lot of professional also suffering from discrimination, you know, exclusion, uh, and even uh, unfair treatment between different nationalities, you know. Uh, so, all the more people on the ground like us who are falling into informal, unskilled category, we are really being constricted We are being immobilized within the system, so then you become only a slave for a certain type of job. 
and then once you are done with you you know the company or the government done with you you will be deported so i think it's important for us to debunk the myth that all this type of migration is really good for us maybe to short term yes uh, because um, many people uh, were able to bring their children to school and in my case i was able to bring my sibling to school free my parent from the debt but in the long run it really destroy family you know we are disconnected with our society our families and we feel very lonely abroad yet we cannot go home you know because what can we do at home you know if the country that we are born with uh, from do not even provide a decent life that can ensure our uh, our own life and our families so i think for people who are not migrants it's very important for you to understand and put yourself in our feet and then from there the question next is what can you help with our migrants you know in indonesia there is currently 10 million migrant workers you know and in the case of filipino 10% of their population is a migrant in the case of india what they are one of the biggest supply for my uh, for migrants you know so the migration with the number today almost over 300 million people is really a big issues in the world today and i think uh, for everyone is really important to open our mind our heart to listen to think on what you you everyone can uh, contribute you know one of the thing that people always ask how can we help you the first is listen just listen Just listen and ask and listen. It's already a big help for anyone who is in the deprived situation like us. That's why a lot of students who become volunteers, one of their work is just to listen and write the stories. And the second is write the stories. You know, you can even write in your own blog, in your own uh, opinion and whatever. And the next is how you can help to contribute to change our life. That will really contribute to engaging in advocacy, in promotion, in in campaign for example you know by explaining to the people in in Indonesia or even in host countries this is the migrants they are also human they are also workers they are not slaves we should stop treating them like this one you know so i think we are now uh, since we are very hopeless with the government they really don't want to listen to our call we are now turning our head to the society at least we appeal to the society to change their mindset so our project is really to change the mindset we really are now starting with the young and younger generation working with among a student especially in the high school elementary school they have a lot of project with us you know and we are really wanting them to be the new generation that will bring us hope in the future thank you so much and it is really you know heartwarming and it's very empowering words of you. Um, I think this is what BBC Network and this iMigrant podcast want to do as well, like, you know, so bringing out the stories of migrant workers and also people who are supporting and see, you know, the, the real life stories of migrations and migrant workers' challenges as well. And recently I had from the Filipino like writer um, who said, you know, your, your stories so important and you are the best persons to tell your stories so you know let us speak you know let us tell our stories and yeah thank you so much Annie. Agree. thank you You're so welcome. much Annie. thank you thank you, so much, thank you for having me